each other. I'm going to give you a chance in a moment. Some of you know some things about me, and you might want to share that with everyone. There's things that I know about some of you. Um, sadly, the names that I've written down are things to tell our people that aren't actually here this morning, but I'll mention it anyway. I know Liz, Liz Graham's Liz, <coughs> spent some time growing up in Kenya, am I right? She's a, she was a proper colonialist, immigrated from England and uh, spent some colonial time in Kenya. Nice. I know Dan's wife, Kerry, is related to Brian Anderson. She is Brian's first cousin twice removed or something. Kerry's dad is Brian's cousin, or words to that effect. So there you go. So there you go. I, I know that Bradley doesn't like hot food, hot and spicy food. Um, and in fact, mayonnaise is too spicy for Bradley. Um, we know this about Bradley. <laughs> um, I, I, I know an awful lot about Jason, but I'm not going to say anything because that would just be horrendous. Uh, <laughs> I dare not. I dare not. Anyone know anything about me? I went to Northwood, the same school that James was at. I did. <laughs> Loved it. Every minute of school. School's wonderful. I, like I like running. I do. Not as not as. Do you support some loser football club? I I support a loser football club. Yes, yes, I do. Black and white all the way. Um, I, 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 I I still think I'm a teenager. I've never grown up. Too right. Last week we started in the book of Thessalonians, First Thessalonians, and we had a quick look at the church at Thessalonica. At Thessalonica. And you, you may remember that I said that the church was, although it was at Thessalonica, the church is actually, the way Paul puts it, the church is in God, and that what was in the church was faith, hope, and love. That was kind of what we looked at, those two, you know, what the church is in and what's in the church, and, and kind of what we were meant to be as a church. We also are meant to be in Christ and what's meant to be in us. So this morning we're going to carry on, chapter 1. Um, this should actually be three different sermons, but I'm going to try and condense it because otherwise we'll be in Thessalonians for months, years even. So I have to, it's one of those services where you have to listen fast because I'm going to speak quickly. Um, so turn up your ESV. Um, and what we're going to see in, in, in First Thessalonians this morning, chapter 1 again, um, just the end of chapter 1. Um, we're going to see, last week was the, 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 the church at Thessalonica, this week it, the focus becomes more the gospel in Thessalonica, and we're going to look at, you'll see it, 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 it's quite obvious, it's what Paul knows, what Paul knows about the Thessalonians, what the Thessalonians know, what they know about Paul, and then what others know about the Thessalonians. So those kind of the three parts, those are three separate sermons that I'm trying to squeeze together this morning. Alright, so let's just read the whole chapter again, might as well, it's only ten verses. Paul, and I'm reading from the ESV this morning, it's slightly different. Uh, Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. 
For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom you raised from the dead, and Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Before I go any further, I just need, Greg, did you bring it? I just remembered now. Oh, he didn't. Never mind, it's not important. Um, okay, so, what do we know about the Thessalonians? What does Paul know about Thessalonica and the Thessalonians? We know that they met in Jason's home. We know that there was a riot and that Jason ended up being dragged before the magistrates and had to pay bail to get out. We know that the city was a free Roman city named after Alexander the Great's daughter or sister or sister-in-law or something. Um, we know there was a synagogue there. There's a good chance that Paul, having spent a few weeks in the city, knew what the best tourist attractions were, perhaps even knew where to go to find the best restaurants. There's a lot of things that Paul knew about the city of Thessalonica. He spent three weeks there, four weeks there, he, he kind of got to know a little bit about the city. But when he writes here the things that he knows, he says there are two things that I know about you. Two things. One easy thing to explain, one complicated thing to explain. He says, I know that you are loved by God, and I know that you are chosen by God. So let me start with the difficult thing, and try and explain to you the difficult thing. You are loved by God. I know that took you by surprise, you thought it was the other way around. No, this is the difficult thing. It is difficult to grasp that we are loved by God. And I know it sounds weird. Why do I need to convince you that God loves you? Surely we don't need any convincing of that because our Western society, our semi-religious society, or part of it anyway, seems to live with the certainty. Of course God loves me. I mean, it's his job, right? It's what he has to do. And after all, I look at myself in the mirror every morning and I say, what's not to love? And so you ask any random people on the street, and they would say, of course God loves me. Uh, it, it's, 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 a, it's a certainty. And, and if you've got any kind of connection to church at all, then you know John 3.16. For God so loved the world. And so we start with that assumption. We start with that as our baseline, that of course God loves me. He is obligated to do so. But why do we make that assumption? Why is it that even the very worst of sinners are very happy to say, of course he loves me? I mean, can we really be that sure, that certain? See, John 3 verse 16 is a great verse, but it's not the only verse in the Bible. In fact, it's not the only verse in the book of John. It's not even the only verse in John chapter 3. Elsewhere in John chapter 3, it tells us that the world is condemned. And in John chapter 1, it tells us that, that the wrath of God remains on many. If you want to have a look at a slightly bigger part of the Bible, you can look at the Psalms, and, and you'll see lots of Psalms that say God hates 
the wicked. Just to be clear, they don't say God hates the sinful practices of the wicked. It actually says God hates wicked people. I know, you say, but no, no, didn't Jesus say, love the sinner, hate the sin? No, he didn't. Gandhi said that. Just so we're clear, Gandhi said that, not Jesus. The Psalms are clear. God hates wicked people. And John chapter 3 tells us that the wrath of God remains on so, so let's not just be too, sh too hasty to kind of shrug and just say, well, of course God loves me, no big deal. As though that were his default position. There's a sense in which the default position of God is that every human being is under his wrath. I've just read from Ephesians this morning that we were, by nature, children of wrath. Our sinful nature puts us at enmity with God, and we were considered His enemies. And I've said this before in church, and had people come to me afterwards and say, no, no, Chris, you don't understand. I, oh, no, I, I was never, never an enemy of God. <laughs> you know, I might not have been a Christian, but I was never His enemy. God and I just kind of ignored each other. No, you were playing for the wrong team. One point, you were playing for the lions. You were on the wrong side. And you were considered God's enemy. The Bible says that that's what you were. The Bible said we were his enemies. We were playing for the other team. We, are, we were with the opposition. We were, we were part of those. And again, Ephesians 2, I read it this morning. We were part of those that were part of the kingdom of darkness. We were the subversives undermining the kingdom of the son that he loves. We were amongst the looters. That's what we were. Now that doesn't mean, all of that doesn't mean that God doesn't love us. But what it should do is make us amazed beyond belief that he would. And in our self-help age of self-acceptance that drives this narrative of unworthy of love, to be honest, we're not. We're not worthy. We're not deserving of His love. And so I guess it's not so much this morning that I'm trying to convince you that God loves you, but I need to try and convince you that the wrath of God is a very real thing. And what I need to convince you of is not that God loves you, but that it is extraordinary that He would love you. It is an extraordinary thing. And if we can grasp, if we, if we can see His love through the prism of His wrath and His anger and our sin, suddenly we begin then to see His love for what it is. Not just kind of some kind of sappy, soppy, indiscriminate, generic, cotton candy floss kind of love, but this deep abiding love in the face of everything that should, that should result in our rejection. God loves you. Paul says, I know this. God loves you. Of course, having said that, having talked about the, the candy floss kind of view of love of the world, to go, no, I don't know if it does really love me. I think there are, and they tend to be religious people. People who kind of have just a little bit of, of Christianity, just a little bit of church, because what happens with religious people is that they tend to live with this kind of low-grade level of underlying guilt. <coughs> God can't love me after what I said yesterday. 
God can't love me after what I did yesterday. God can't love me after where I went or what I thought. But again, let me assure you of this, that this is what Paul knows. He loves you. In spite of our sin, in spite of our rebellion, in spite of the darkness, in spite of who we are, He loves us and He loves immeasurably and abundantly. How great the Father's love for us that He should call us His children, for that is what we are. I know this, He loves you. That's the difficult one. I'll let me deal with the easy one. Chosen by God. Not only does Paul know that they're loved, but also they're chosen. Not only do we know that He loves you, but we also know that He has chosen you. And this sometimes gets people freaked out. This idea that God chooses me. What about my free will? What about my choice? Don't I get choices in this? <laughs> Some of you know this. Some of you are already packing your bags ready to leave because this is going to get ugly. Um, there, there have been two sides to this debate throughout church history. right? Does God choose me or do I choose God? Which one is it? To use nice big Bible language, is, is it divine sovereignty or is it human responsibility? Which does the Bible teach? And the answer is that the Bible teaches both. The Bible teaches both. The Bible teaches divine sovereignty and human responsibility. But, I will say this, the underlying emphasis in Scripture rests on divine sovereignty, of God's action, of God's choice. And I know people try and navigate around this, and now He chooses us based on what He can see us doing one day in the future. No, that's not how it goes. And I know a lot of people do, they get worked up and very offended about this idea of God's sovereign choices. Does this turn us into some kind of automaton? Is it just fatalism? Um, what about my free will? It's just not fair, people will say. But this doctrine is laid out throughout Scripture from beginning to end, not as a, as a, a source of d debate and argument and division, but it's there as our, meant to be as a source of our encouragement and deep joy. I think people get offended by this because they have the wrong picture, the wrong image in their minds of what this looks like. So I think what a lot of us have in our minds, this, vision, this, this impression that we have in our minds is that there's the gates to heaven and there's a long line of people and they're all joining Eric Clapton, knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. <laughs> and God acts as a bouncer and he stands at the gate and says, you can't come in because you're too tall. And you can't come in because you're too short-sighted. You can't come in because you've got too many freckles. But you can come in because I kind of like the look of you. And God the bouncer, kind of, you know, he's there letting some in and keeping others out. That's not really the image that the Bible paints of how this all goes together. That's not the image at all. In fact, the image that we have is, in fact, that there is the gates to heaven are open. And there are balloons outside with a great big all welcome, on, uh, you know, spread out there. And there's, there's loudspeakers playing lovely music saying, all can come in, anybody who wants to. And the road in front of heaven is empty. There's not a single soul on it. There is no one knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. Not even Eric Clapton. In fact, everybody on the planet is singing a different song. They've joined in with ACDC. And they're singing, we're on a highway to hell. And that's what we are. There is a highway, and we're all on it. 
and there are flashing neon signs on the highway saying, next exit heaven, do a U-turn now, road ends in a fiery lake of sulfur, don't go there. And every single human being on the planet is on that road, on that highway, sees the signs, and by their own free will, freely chooses to ignore every one of those signs, and freely chooses to walk this road to the end. Despite having the freedom to choose heaven, we all freely choose hell. So this is not as though, this whole thing of God's sovereign choice is not as though we're all sitting in some kind of neutral space somewhere and God comes along and goes, damned, damned, blessed, blessed, damned, heaven, heaven, hell. <coughs> it's not some neutral place at all. It's that every single one of us has, is running with gay abandon in this headlong pursuit of hell, embracing our sin, and the marketing is so good, we think it's heaven. And God goes, everyone is going to hell. I'm going to rescue some. Why doesn't he rescue all? I don't know. You can ask him one day. But God, in grace, sends His Son into our hell. He sends His Son into the hell that we embrace, into the hell that we're running to. And because He loves us deeply, He comes and rescues you who were dead in your trespasses and sins. And so when you go to a graveyard and you attempt to raise the dead, do you go in and say, any dead people here want to come to life? Just raise your hand. No. I mean, it doesn't happen, right? Because what can the dead do? <coughs> Nothing. And so Jesus in grace comes and raises to life we who are dead in our sin because he loves you deeply. And instead of saying, that's not fair, we should be going, I am amazed. I am amazed that his love would send him to come for me, that he would come and rescue me from my hell and not leave me there. God's sovereign grace is a direct outworking of his divine love for you. And we should be blown away by this this morning. That in grace, out of all the people who reject him, out of all those who despise him, out of all those who freely choose hell over heaven, that he has reached into your sin and misery transformed you and brought you into the kingdom of his son that he loves. That he did not leave you dead in your trespass and sins, but has brought you to life. Paul says, I know this. I know that he loves you and that he has chosen you. But how does he know this? How do we know that? How does Paul know that God loved and chosen these people? How do we know that God loves us? How do we know that He has chosen us? And I know again some people go, well, if it's if God's chosen me, and I don't know whether He's chosen me or not, so I just it's fatalism, I just give up. And blah, blah, blah. Paul says, we can know. Here's how we know. He says, I know, I know that you've been chosen. Let me tell you how I know you've been chosen. The gospel came to you. The gospel came. This is how I know. He sent the gospel. This is how God loved you. This is how we know God loved you. He sent the gospel to you. Paul essentially says, God could have sent us with the gospel to Timbuktu. But instead, he sent us with the gospel to this church in Thessalonica. The gospel came to you. 
Why? Because God loves you and has chosen you and he sent the gospel. And Paul says there are four evidences of the gospel coming to you that proves, that proves that he loves and has chosen you. He says, first of all, the gospel came to you in word. And you remember in Acts chapter 17, Paul spent time and the synagogue, opening the Bible, showing them from the Old Testament that the Messiah had to come and suffer and die and be raised again. <coughs> and now Jesus came and suffered and died and rose again. Now Jesus is the Messiah. Paul says the gospel came to you with words. You were able to hear. God opened your ears and you heard the gospel. How do I know that God loves you this morning? You get to hear the gospel. You get to hear it. He has sent the gospel to you. It's evidence that he loves you. Paul says the gospel came not only in word, but came also in power. It was like a bomb that detonated and went off inside of these people. And we'll see in a minute some of the changes that the gospel made in them. Now, some people read that and go, well, the gospel came with power. Well, that means that they grew a third leg and an extra eye and money dropped out the sky. No, not that kind of power. Power to change and transform lives from within. That's what the gospel did. That's what the evidence that we see in these people, that their lives were changed and transformed. How do you know God loves you? How do I know? I've seen some of you change. I've seen many of you change. I've seen many of you get older and grayer and slower. Uh, but we've seen the gospel make changes in lives. The gospel came in word and in power and in the spirit. God sent his spirit to these people. And again, the spirit comes to transform us and change us to the image of the Son. The evidence of the fruit of the spirit in our lives points to the truth that the gospel has come and we have been chosen and loved by him. He has given us his spirit. And finally, the gospel came with conviction. Paul says, I know that you're loved and chosen because the gospel came and convicted you. It, it confronted your sin. I know that you're chosen and loved by him because your sin has been confronted. God did not leave you as you are in your sin to embrace it and enjoy it and be destroyed by it. Not that the gospel turns us into guilty wrecks. The gospel convicts us of our sin and points us to the need of a savior. Religion leaves us with guilty wrecks. Religion leaves us going, I've been a bad boy. I'll do better next time. I'll try harder. Religion tells us to do that. But the gospel, the gospel goes, I am a sinner and I need a savior. Paul says, yes, I know that you're loved and chosen because he sent the gospel. And here's the evidence of the gospel. The gospel came to you in word, in power, in the spirit, and with conviction. How can we know that we are loved and chosen by him? The power of the gospel at work in you is all the evidence that you need. How do I know that he's loved and chosen you? I've seen some of you for 20 years now. Now I see the evidence of God's grace at work in you. And I've seen your wrestles and your victories and your defeats. And I know that he loves you and has chosen you because I see you. I see him, the gospel. Paul knew about them. What did they know about Paul? Paul says, I know that you are loved and chosen, but you know something about me, Paul says. You know something about me and Silas and Timothy. 
You know the kind of people that we were. You know the kind of lives that we lived among you. You know what we were like. And that prompted something in them. That prompted a response. Paul says you were able to see us. You watched what we did. You saw how we behaved and how we looked. Even just in those three or four weeks that we were with you. And what you saw made an impact. What you saw transformed something. Four, three things that they became. Says, first of all, you became mimics. You became imitators of Paul and Timothy Silas. Now that's that's tall order. I'm not sure that I want to say to you guys, please imitate me. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if that's necessarily the right thing. But but there is a question in this of who do you imitate? Who do you imitate? Who or what becomes your role model? Because we like to mimic others. And I think for many of us, our attitudes, our actions, our opinions are just an imitation of the world around us. We end up imitating the views and opinions and lifestyles of Hollywood stars, of our favorite Instagrammer. They're not called influencers for nothing, for no reason. Or our favorite TikTok star, that's the latest thing, right? Or your YouTube commentator. Paul says here, you imitated us and of the Lord. When Paul wrote a letter to the Philippians, which is the town that he visited before Thessalonica, he said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I'm not sure that I want to say please imitate me, but I do want to say this morning, let's imitate Christ. What did that look like? It's reaching out to the other, reaching out to the different, reaching out to the marginalized, Reaching out to the poor and the broken, embracing the road to Jerusalem, become imitators of Him. Not only were they, were they mimics and imitators, they also became models, they became examples. Paul says you became examples so that others were able to look to you and follow your example. And again, I think many of us are examples. Sadly, many of us are poor examples. Many of us are, are not the greatest examples. Or loving our spouse. I'm not sure if we could all say, God, just follow my example. I'm a great example. And yet the gospel had made such an impact on the Thessalonians who were loved and chosen by God that this is exactly what they became. Examples for others to follow. They lived their lives in such a way that others were able to go, that's how it should happen. That's how it should take place. So again, what example do you set for your kids? What example do you set for your grandkids? What example do you set for your co-workers and your family and friends? I'm going to go off a little side rant here for a moment and just have a, have a little go and a little poke with a sharp stick. And I'm speaking primarily to the people this morning who are not here and who are not watching online. Um, so I'm speaking to the people who will never hear anything that I'm about to say. So, I, I posted a short clip on our Facebook page this week on Thursday. I think if you haven't watched it, can I recommend you please do go and watch it. My friend Stephen, who was a youth group with us 20 years ago, 25 years ago, just said it so well. But, but the question to ask that, that I'm asking this morning is, where are you? Where are you? There's 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, 14, 16, How many? 35. 35 people here this morning. Where are you? Why are you not here in church today? 
And I get it. I understand fully. Some of you need to isolate and stay at home. Some of you need to, you're concerned about COVID and you should stay at home. Absolutely. Don't go into public, public places. But that's slowly changing. The vaccine's going out. I got my microchip this week. Bill Gates knows exactly where I am. This morning. Um, yeah, I'm starting to, I'm, I'm, I can feel the nuclear tingles going on. Um, the vaccine is starting to do, to do its job amongst those who are wanting to be vaccinated. And I just want to say, if you've been vaccinated, why are you at home? And I, I, I know that a lot of people in our church are quite happy to go and have a cup of coffee at Wimby during the week, but won't come, to, come here on a Sunday morning. And I'm just going, why? You're happy to go and visit a friend at a friend's house and take your mask off, but you won't come here. Why? And there are plenty of us, plenty of people who form part of our church, who for the last year now, who have simply got into the habit of not pitching up, even online. And who've gone, Sunday morning, let's go to the beach. And you know what, if you need to go to the beach on Sunday morning, go to the beach. This is not a thou shalt never, ever, 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 ever skip church. There are times when you need to skip church. There are times when you need to take your family and go to the beach for the day. There are times when you need to go and visit grandma. But when you go to the beach four weeks in a row, and then week number five, oh, it's a bit chilly this morning, I think we'll just stay in bed and drink tea. We'll just watch service on Tuesday night at double speed, just before we hit our Netflix show. Let me just say, I don't think that's church. Now, Stephen, his whole thing on YouTube, go and watch it, was, um, that's not good for your spiritual health. My thing this morning, my little bent on it is, what example are you setting? What are you saying to your kids? What are you saying to your grandkids? I'll tell you what you're saying. I'll tell you exactly what you're saying. You're saying church isn't important. It's just not important. It's not important for us, important enough for us to go. And again, I get it. You've got COVID. You're worried about COVID. You, you're concerned that you're going to get COVID. Stay at home. But if you're going to the shops and wandering through and having a look at all these nice clothes and touching everything that you and sitting down and spur for another breakfast, I'm just not sure that you're really that concerned about COVID. So, there's my little rant and a sharp poke in the eye for those who aren't actually going to ever see this. Um, and again, just to be clear, this is not thou shalt never skip church. This is not some kind of religious you must and you have to, and if you don't, you'll be guilty. Never visit grand because it's a birthday. Take a day off because you've had six days of nastiness at work and you need a day in bed to just chill. That's great. But when that's the habit, when that's the norm, it's a bad example to set. And I know, having said all that, we can only have 50 here on a Sunday morning. But that means that there's room for another thousand mats. 15 more people here today. Lots of space. Come next week, and when there's a queue outside, we'll send some of you home. It's okay. Um, you can stand outside and look through the windows. Yes. All right. So, so Paul says, you guys became an example. And, and, and that's kind of my point. Are you a good example to follow? And those of you that are here, yes, you are in that regard. But in other aspects of life, you know, are we, are we setting the example to follow? And then thirdly, he says that we're like messengers. Wait a moment. We're, we're meant to be uh, 
messengers. That's what Paul says. The message of the gospel has sounded forth from you like a bell. And the whole of Greece has heard the gospel from you. It has gone out nice and loud. And I just wonder how loud <coughs> has the gospel gone out from us. I think that it tends to be something like this. What's supposed to happen next is that Greg is going to give a blast on his trumpet. So imagine the sound of the trumpet compared to... <laughs> but isn't that to some extent true? That the gospel is meant to go out in a great noise, like a trumpet blast that the whole world can hear, and us Christians in church go... They became mimics, they became models, they became messengers. What Paul knows about them, loved and chosen by God, what they know about Paul resulted in, in them becoming mimics, models and messengers. And then Paul says finally, what the surrounding community, what the world around knew about them. <coughs> Again, three things, number 3.2. Here is the power of the gospel. First thing that Paul says, they see, they know that you turned. You turned. You turned from idols. They turned their backs on those things that brought them security and comfort. There is a museum in Thessalonica today that have a whole bunch of first century idols. You can go and check them out. Uh, Apollo, Dionysius. Athene, Hades, they're all there. They've got some Egyptian gods there. Isis and Horus are there. There was a strong imperial cult at the time. They worshipped Rome. They worshipped the empire. They worshipped the emperor. There are, in this little museum, clocks that have been stuck up in walls around the city, deifying their sporting heroes. Who's wearing a Springbok jersey today? Uh, <laughs> Sorry, Greg. Um, <laughs> they deified their sporting and their war heroes. Because these are the people, these are the things that will bring us joy and happiness and fulfillment and satisfaction and meaning and purpose in life. And we're no different. Our society still worships the imperial cult. The right political party will bring about a better life for all. Right? That's why Americans stormed the Capitol a couple of months ago, because only Donald Trump can save America. And their, their whole dialogue for the last however many years now has been, save America from the communists, or save America from the liberals. And our worship is absolutely worship. Our nation isn't much different. If we can just get the right person in power, we'll be saved. We worship our homemade gods. We, we might not have a chunk of stone in our lounge, but we, we have all the surface idols, things like money and relationships and booze and the job. All the things that we, we think will make life more bearable and make life more satisfying. But the truth is, there are idols beneath those idols, aren't there? Those, those kind of idols are really just the surface thing. You know? so we, we used to talk in the 1980s of, of TV as your idol, music as your idol, Actually, that's just the, the fruits of a deeper root. 
Tim Keller likes to say that there, there are four deeper rooted idols that we need to deal with. Power, control, comfort, and approval. And every other surface idol is just an expression of one of those deeper ones. It's not the booze that you worship, but if you can't get through the night without a six-pack of beer, it's because you need the comfort. It's the only, and you think that the only way that you can get comfort and peace is by getting your buzz on. And the deeper root, the deeper root of the idol is comfort. Or you work like crazy because you need to be in control. You need to know that you're in control of your future. And because you're sovereign, not God. Or you chase money like mad, because, not because you love the cash, but you love the approval that comes with buying all the nice things that you get from having cash. And for these guys in Thessalonica, the gospel had gone off like a bomb and had confronted the idols and pointed them to Jesus. And that's what the gospel does. It confronts our idols and tells us, Jesus is your rest. Jesus is your comfort. Jesus is your approval. Jesus is your sovereign who holds control. But it's never just turning from. It's always got to be a turning to. They turned from their idols, but they needed to turn to God. And so we must replace one with the other. And, and in fact, we will. If we turn from one idol, we'll replace it with something else. Turn your back on booze and you'll replace it with, I don't know, drugs. I don't know. You'll, you'll replace it with something. But what these guys have done is that they turned from their idols and their replacement was, we're serving the living God. We've turned from our idols and we've turned to God. An old dead guy called Thomas Chalmers has a wonderful little phrase. The expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. Now, what that, what that phrase says is, is that when we find something that we love deeply, it will expel the old things that we shouldn't love at all. And so we, here we are, embracing our idols, but when we grasp the love that God has for us, and when that is embedded in us, and we in turn respond with love to Him, that new affection of our love for Him expels the love that we have of our idols we begin to see that He is our comfort. We don't need comfort from here anymore. They turn from idols to the living God and finally Paul says they know, those people out there watching you, they know that you're waiting for something. And our, way, our society is waiting for something. Some of us are waiting for the leaders to come back. We're waiting for the government to rescue us. We're still waiting for them to deploy the army. We're waiting uh, for, for our business to take off so that our business can rescue us. We're waiting for COVID restrictions to end. We're waiting for a better life for all. Some of us are waiting. No, no, no one here. Okay, may, may, let, me, let me change this. Some of us are waiting for girlfriend. Some of us are waiting for Some, We're waiting for something that will give us hope. Thessalonians are waiting patiently for the coming of the Son who rescues us from the wrath that is to come. We're waiting for Him. And just what are you waiting for? What are you looking forward to? What is your hope? We're waiting for Him and His kingdom. We're waiting for the one who has loved and chosen and changed us. We're waiting for Him. So what do you know? I know this. He loves you, but he 
has chosen you. How do I know this? Because I've seen the gospel at work in you. I've seen his grace at work so that you become imitators that many of you set the example. Some of you blow your own trumpet. We've turned from idols to serve the living God as we wait for him. This I know. Let's pray. And as I'm praying with the band, come and join me back on stage. Lord, this morning we celebrate your goodness, grace, mercy, and love toward us. Lord, as we've reflected this morning, this is what we know. You, our God, who, who should condemn us, loves us deeply. You, our God, who should reject us, has instead chosen us and embraced us and changed us. Lord, as we reflect on what we know, as we reflect on your love for us, may, may that transform us. As we grasp more deeply the gospel, as we grasp more deeply the love of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit, may we be transformed as we turn our backs constantly on our idols, as we turn again and again to you, as we wait patiently, Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand together.